From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today on The Public Morality, Dr. Gail Myers joins us to discuss urban farms and the plight of the black farmer. After that, we speak with Rebecca Vallis from the Center for American Progress on Urban Poverty. That's coming up on The Public Morality. Since a number of low-income communities in urban areas live in what are known as food deserts, which are areas where it is difficult to buy affordable, fresh, quality food, a number of communities have embraced urban farming as a way to combat this trend that potentially impacts every aspect of an individual's pursuit of a quality life. I recently spoke with Dr. Gail Myers. Dr. Myers is co-founder of Farms to Grow, a nonprofit organization dedicated to working with black farmers and underserved sustainable farmers around the country. Dr. Gail Myers, welcome to The Public Morality. Thank you so much, Byron, for inviting me. When we think about uh, urban farming, it's not something that readily comes to mind. So why don't you provide a a synopsis as to the importance of, of urban farms? Well, urban farming has, you know, it's nothing new. You remember the Victory Gardens uh, that uh, during the Depression years were so important to keeping, saving off starvation. And in fact, the before the Victory Gardens, when people moved into uh, the so-called urban centers, everybody, most African Americans and, and a lot of uh, traditional uh, other people also had backyard gardens, the front yard gardens. People have always grown food. I think with the, you know, after, I guess, the 60s and the 70s and the, uh, the supermarket trend got very popular, people, you know, home gardens became less important, and the grocery store became the center for how people looked at uh, the main source of their food. So I think what's happening right now, given the the fact that grocery stores that used to be, you know, in a lot of communities aren't in as many communities or the communities have grown so that grocery stores have not kept up with the growth in communities. So people don't have a ready source of getting food. They're not growing their own food. So uh, the urban farming, gardening scene has played an important role in uh, supplying uh, needed food for people that don't have access. I will say, though, that I think a lot of the people that really need those, you know, that that live in the places that we now have been termed food deserts, uh, many of those people aren't necessarily growing the food. They may be uh, part of a community garden or a school garden program, but uh, I think, we, you know, we we could see a lot more, you know, people that are living in in large housing communities develop housing communities community gardens and really have more of a community urban farming scene than what we really see. At least that's what I've seen here in California. Uh, Let me also say that the urban farming is important, but we cannot lose sight of the connection of our roots to the rural farmer. Um, A lot of the land, you know, here in, in California anyway, the gardens have been, the urban community gardens, have been located in vacant lots. So they'll, you know, petition the, the landowner or, you know, to 
let me put some food here. Well, eventually what's happened with gentrification is that those there are fewer vacant lots. And what's happened is that those vacant lots that look really um, nice as community gardens are now, you know, looking nicer as being turned into apartment complexes or residential. Uh, and so the transition is moving away from those vacant lots into the development. And so there are fewer community-type gardens that people have access to now because of gentrification in, in many of the cities. So putting in an urban garden uh, doesn't necessarily ensure that you're going to be able to feed yourself unless you own that land. Mm -hmm. The rural farmers, why their land ownership is so important, is most of the farmers that have farms within the countryside are landowners. They, you know, the majority of them are second, third generation farmers who are trying to hold on to their family land. And those are the farmers that have the, the historical presence on farming and on that land. And so we borrow in the urban community, we're borrowing that knowledge that those are early, our first farmers have, you know, carried forward. And so it, uh, it's important that we look at the urban farming, but we cannot forget about the rural farmers that are always going to be farming and, and hopefully always owning their land. You said something that I, I just want you to put a little clarity to if you don't mind sure. um, um just explain uh what what's a food desert for those who may not be familiar with that term yeah the food desert it's a term that i believe it came from the national institute of health it's not a term that came from the people uh some researcher probably came up with it and it Im implies a large uh, swaths a, a large density of community where there is no food that you can purchase easily. Um, the easiest place would be a convenience store where you could probably get a, um, a tomato or, you know, uh, a, a potato or something. But there's no grocery store where you can actually go in and, and do your shopping. And so what's happened for people that live in these so-called food deserts is that they have um, experienced really high turnouts of uh hypertension and diabetes and obesity. And a lot of that, you know, the food desert, I, I kind of alluded to the grocery stores moving out. Much of that has been created through systemic uh, processes, which, you know, banks redline uh, different uh, communities for worthiness of, of business locations. Um, you know, certain zip codes are, you know, deemed unsafe or unprofitable. So for a lot of businesses like grocery stores, they won't go into this particular zip code and it continues to create a food desert. And generally those communities are uh, low wealth, low earning um, community members. And so uh, there is a sort of this, this cycle that, that goes on. You don't have good food. You don't have good nutrition. You don't have good earning potential. So it just sort of, you know, spirals into, you know, this sort of continuous cycle of, of lack of good health and good quality of life. Mm -hmm. um, let's talk a little bit about youth uh, for just a moment. How, 
Talk about how you became involved in this issue and, and give us a little background on how you arrived to this yeah, point. Yeah, I was a graduate student at Ohio State University in Columbus. Would that be the Ohio State University? The Ohio State <laughs> University, need effort, get to the Ohio State. <laughs> um, and I went to Ohio State to go to Ecuador. I'm a cultural anthropologist. And as you know, we anthropologists, we go other places and we study so-called other, quote-unquote, other people. I was going to Ecuador to study a group of um, Africans who had gotten marooned during the transatlantic slave movement. And um, the first week I had a conversation with my advisor who was working with Amish farmers in Pennsylvania and Ohio. And the conversation of African-American farmers came up. I admitted that I didn't know anything. This was in 1997. I had no knowledge at all of what was happening with African-American farmers. So I left his office feeling a lot embarrassed, really, because I was the only African-American student in the department at that time. And I thought, at least I need to know what's happening with black farmers the next time that question comes up. So I went to the library and uh, started a literature search. And then at that time was the beginning of the USDA versus um, it was a class action suit brought about 12,000 farmers. So it was the Pickford versus Glickman uh, litigation. Now, didn't that where, lawsuit just get settled, like, recently? And it's... It did. It <laughs> did. It started in the late 90s, and I think it was during – part of it was it started actually going forward during the Clinton administration, and the real disbursement happened during President Obama's administration. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know – Speaking of administrations, the claim, the, dim- the discrimination claims from these farmers happened as early as the 80s. This was during Reagan's administration. So there was the Office of Affirmative Action um, or the Office of Civil Rights that uh, farms farmers that was set up as the USDA that you could complain to if you felt like you were being discriminated against. Well, during Reagan's administration, they closed that office, Right. So if you had a claim, you couldn't even file it because under his administration, he considered there was no more discrimination. We're all it's all about affirmative action. When um, Clinton to followed the the Bush after Reagan, then the Bush, the first Bush George president, Bush. yeah, first Bush. During his administration, he shredded any evidence of complaints that had been in that office before Reagan closed it. So. Clinton administration, farmers began to file, uh, they wanted to file a civil suit or or, a class action suit during his administration. And he told the farmers that in order to file a suit, you've had to have issued a complaint before. Did you all complain? They said, yeah, we complained. They couldn't find the complaints because the the, the documents were shredded. But there was one farmer that actually had uh, saved his papers because he was a meticulous keeper of paperwork, and that's the reason that they were able to move the litigation forward. But anyway, um, back in 97, that's what was going on. So I became curious. I went to the um, meeting in Detroit that was held by Congressman Conyers, and um, I, I traveled and I started interviewing farmers, And because I, I wanted to know, well, what, what is this discrimination? So it, you know, became apparent to me that I was not going to Ecuador. <laughs> so eventually I ended up doing my dissertation uh, work with African-American farmers in Ohio. 
and uh, produced a document. And during those years of being in Ohio and talking to the farmers, my heart just poured out to uh, the plight and the situation and, and just what the ordeals from the very early uh, farming days to the time in which I was doing my research, African-American farmers have been pushing the rock uphill without any support. So when I graduated, and many of my colleagues were applying to universities and archaeological associations and, and such, and they asked me, they said, Gail, you know, what are you going to do? And I said, I don't know, but I got farms to grow. <laughs> so I moved back to Atlanta, which is where I got my master's at Georgia State, and thought that I would begin working in, in the South. Uh, well, when I was in Ohio, my focus was actually became, uh, from a theoretical perspective, agroecology and sustainable agriculture. When I got into Atlanta in 2002 and started talking to people about agroecology and sustainable agriculture, not very many people knew what I was talking about. There was this quizzical look on most of the people that I asked that question. They didn't know what sustainable agriculture was. And I thought, oh, my goodness. Anyhow, um, I got a short-term uh, contract to come out to San Francisco for three months at the end of 2003. I was here from October, November, and December, and I started asking people about sustainable agriculture. And while here in California, everyone that I asked, not only did they know what it was, but they began to refer me to several people that could give me more information. Oh, you got to talk to this person. Oh, you got to go to this conference. So I felt right at home. So I moved to California in 2004 started talking to some of the African-American farmers out here. And uh, lo and behold, found them telling me the same story that I'd heard from farmers in California and farmers in Georgia and uh, Alabama that I'd spoken with in, in doing the research as well. So the state the state may have changed, but the, 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 the conversation the was, was the same. It was the same. was exactly the same. So I had been uh, continuing communication with several of the farmers in Ohio and one of them was a guy named Gordon Reed, who was an urban farmer in um, second generation, uh, edible landscape farmer, I'll put it like that. His father was a land, edible landscape farmer. That means he didn't grow anything he didn't eat. He said, if I can't eat it, I'm not watering it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so his yard, you know, it's just, it looks ornamental, but, but it's cabbage and corn and beans. And So Gordon, uh, I was talking to Gordon, and uh Said we got to do something, and so uh, we started Farms to Grow. Now, since, and in oh, that's 2004, perfect... we didn't know what we were going to do, but we knew we needed to do something. That's a perfect so segue. That's how I got in this work. That's a perfect segue. Tell us about Farms to Grow specifically about what yeah, what that does. Farms to Grow is uh, it's a 501c organization that uh, its its mission is to facilitate avenues of support. African-American farmers and other socially disadvantaged uh, farmers. So the work primarily now in, in, you know, involves, we have farmer's market here in California. We have a farmer's training program where we are training farmers to prepare them to sell at a farmer's market. We have what's called the Freedom Farmer's Market. Our season opens in July. And uh, we've recruited uh, African-American farmers and uh, food preparers and other vendors throughout the, the Northern California area. And we meet every Saturday. And uh, it's a happening, as they say. We have a crowded pea shelling contest. We have a watermelon eating contest. Um, we play James Brown. You know, we celebrate black mm-hmm. experience around food. 
one of the things that is so missing from a main um, food narrative is the appreciation from an African perspective around our food. It's been integrated into the mainstream culture, but the ways in which we celebrate it and as a community uh, has been missing. So we do that. You know, you come to the Freedom Farmers Market, you can engage with African-American farmers, African-American vendors, um, and the, just the experience talking about the things that Grandma used to prepare and, and old recipes and, you know, the ways in which we celebrate community historically, but we don't have the venues out in public to do. So we present a public venue for people to be proud about being African-American and talking about the food experience. You know, food is a lot more than just sort of the consumption of it. Food is about the historical recognition, uh, the identification of you and, you know, your community with, with regard to that food. So we help people to make those connections that we still are going to influence people's quality of life. If you can take that experience into your life and, and, and create a happy experience, a healthy experience, and that will influence how you go about your community. On that note right there, I want to I pick up something. I think it's something that was critical. Sure. I, I want you to explain the relation between healthy food and a healthy community, not just physical health but education and that overall esprit de corps because those are all interrelated. You're so right, Byron. I, 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 you know, we, we, we might need a two-hour podcast for that. <laughs> I was just actually in a, in a community where we were exploring um, the possibility of a farmer's market coming there. And uh, met with a guy, and, you know, his group had, had two years ago, they did like a little pilot. He said, well, we set up our market, and we set the farm stand right downstairs from this housing community, and nobody came, right? And I said, you, you mean you had fresh farm food every Wednesday, and you gave out, you know, you took EBT, and nobody came? He says, no. So I started thinking about, you know, our relationship to healthy food, and it's emotional, Right. You know, for a lot of us that have the information, you know, the literacy around the right, well, I don't want to say the right because I don't want to shame anybody around what's right or wrong, but the literacy around sort of the proper nutrition, like, you know, we want to eat uh, balanced uh, protein, carbohydrates, and oils, right, because that's what we're from and that's what our body needs. We want a, a balance of, um, you know, five a day, right? Mm -hmm. So now that's a certain type of literacy to rec to understand that. You have that literacy within the context of a healthy perspective of who you are in your community. So if you're, you know, the, the community health is not being supported by internal structures or external structures, it's going to be a challenge for you as a member of that community to kind of make yourself healthy within a community and that, that priority does not exist. So, you know, one of the reasons why I think it's so important to see African-American farmers and African-American vendors, because it creates a community. It creates a sense of awareness that people say it's not just an anomaly where I see one black farmer over here or, you know, one black person here eating healthy. It's like there is a community of us, and we all cook, you know, uh, greens and sweet potatoes and peas, and we have Sunday dinner, and, you know, we talk about the healthiness of you know, are you getting your milk? Or are you getting your, you know, proper iron? You know, and so health really is attached to not only just the food, but your emotional wherewithal, 
and your understanding of that connection, you know, your power, right? Mm -hmm. Your power to make the decision about what's healthy and what's not. And, you know, it could come down to people feeling powerless in their community, not being able to make those decisions, so just giving the power up. And, um, but uh, there, you know, that, that, uh, and I don't know if I'm, you know, sort of making it plain, but that relationship of a healthy community, a healthy community, love for itself, love for everybody in the community, translates into how you nourish your food. You know, the things that you uh, allow your children to consume or absorb, you know, uh, the things that you allow to come into the community. So there, there's, you know, the it's a it's a formula, but it, it definitely needs a holistic approach. Right. You know, you know, a grocery store in a neighborhood is one element to better health, but we need a community that's really committed to to enlivening its own health. You know, sort of taking that the own the empowerment. I can't give you empowerment, but you can take your power. You can empower yourself. Speaking with Dr. Gail Myers about black farmers and urban farming, I want to turn to black farmers, in fact. And, okay. And, and um, so, sort of a, I, I wondered this as I was uh, knew what we were going to talk today. I was wondered, given the country's uh, legacy of slavery and sharecropping, do you, do you think there's a stigma attached to the black farmer even within the African-American community at large today? I think so. I think it definitely the black farmers don't have it. Uh, because they, uh, they're smart enough to realize the importance and the love and the necessity. You know, the farmers that I've talked to know that their work is, is next to God's work. You know, stewarding the land, growing food, taking care of animals, taking care of the soil, um, making sure that your local natural environment is intact. Uh, you know, that, that is good work, and that's a good day's work. And so for the men and women that love that, no, they they don't have the shame around it. But I think uh, for those of us that haven't um, become as aware as those farmers, there is some degree of shame. And, um, you know, we, 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 we deal with that. We work with kids, uh, young people in our garden programs. And, you know, the, at a certain age, I think when they're the, sort of the late middle school, high school, then they begin to take on that, you know, notion of it connected to that enslavement period. But we work with younger students, and they're out there, and they feel it. There's a spiritual connection that they get from, I guess, four or five, six-year-olds. Because we work actually in Head Starts and um, community uh, child development centers and after-school programs. And we uh, we see younger people getting into it, and, and they somehow tap into that spiritual connection, and they love it. They want to grow up to be this. They what do you call this? I, this is what I want to be when I grow up. So, you know, we work on that, and it's just the degree of which the, the media and the marketing, and, you know, I think within our community we haven't honored the farmer as we used to because we all had a farmer in our family. And that farmer usually was the landowner, um, that farmer usually was the person that donated land uh, for the community to build a school or 
to build a church, that farmer had so much respect and was honored. But because we've lost the relationship and the connection to the land and the farmers, we don't know the um, the honor uh, and the privilege almost <laughs> that people used to have uh, about growing food, you know, to be able to have the knowledge of, you know, certain people knew how to grow food and and attached to the food is the healing. So we had the, mostly it was the grandmothers, the women, knew where to go around the farm to get this different healing herbs and different roots. You know, um, many of us might remember the root medicine growing up, depending on, who, you know, what area you came from, right? Right. And exactly. these are people that have this knowledge that grew, that was attached to the farm because the farm always had a forest. So, you know, community, certain members of the community did the farming. Certain members of the community knew how to go and get the healing herbs. And so when somebody had a toothache or the baby had a had a ear infection, they would call Aunt Maddie or Grandma Sue, and she would say, okay, when I just what you do. You go do this, you go do that. I'm going to bring you an herb or this and that. All of that was holistic knowledge that kept us healthy, and it was tied to that relationship to the land. We're so removed now. We go to Walgreens for a tablet for this or CVS for, for uh, ointment of this. We never went to those grocery stores. We went right to the forest. So as we have lost our love for farming and the dignity that comes with that, we've also lost the knowledge that has come from our own ability to heal our community. You know, we see these elders, and then, you know, in some communities, um, we don't love and respect our elders like we used to. They don't have a place. Well, I'll tell you back in the days in which I grew up, and many of us probably in your listening audience, we always had the respect. We always, you know, did everything we could to keep our elders in the community because they had irreplaceable knowledge. They were just as a necessity as the doctor, right, right. or the police or anybody. Um, the elders were our guidance, you know, barometer for a lot of things that happen within our community. We don't have a place for our elders anymore. They're in the senior center. They're in the adult. They're removed from our community. We have lost that holistic, healthy nature that will keep us together as a community. In the few minutes we have left, I, I would I want you just to talk real brief, if you could, uh, about the documentary, uh, yes, Rhythms of the right. Land. I, 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 Rhythms of the Land. Yeah, tell us about that. <laughs> well, I went into the field. I, I love this work so much, Byron. I saw uh, a lot of the farmers that I've worked with throughout my career have been in their 80s, 90s, and, and 100s. And so I, I began to get calls throughout the years of this elder going on to be with the ancestors, and I thought I should have captured that story. So I went into the field in 2012 with a camera, 10 states, and about three I, I, I think it was, I think it was at least four or five thousand miles. I put on a car and I traveled to interview these farmers. So I have interviews of thirty farmers, a basket weaver, sharecroppers, urban gardeners, African American men and women that tell their story of what it was like. Um, four of them are in their hundreds. One of them is my great aunt Rose, who is now one hundred and three. Uh, several in their nineties, because I knew that this one I wanted to get our elder farmers. So it's a narrative that needs to be told, and it's it's a story that has never been told. So I'm very honored to be the vehicle by which um, 
the farmers have shared their stories, and I want to bring this to the world. I um, did the filming in 2012, so right now it's in post-production. I'm raising money. I need Danny Glover or Oprah Winfrey or someone that has a, <laughs> a budget that can move this product forward. I'm, you know, in addition to this, I'm managing the nonprofit and, and speaking and writing. So I haven't had the time to fully 100% invest, but I'm looking to later this year as we train a new manager and I've brought on an ED for the uh, organization that I can uh, – take time away from managing the organization and really get back to getting this film into the theaters because these stories need to be shared and they they need the world needs to know the, the rightful place of african-american farmers and gardeners and sharecroppers and we haven't heard the story enough finally uh i want i wanted to ask what would it require what would it look like uh for dr gail myers to say to herself one day okay my work is complete <laughs> Boy, I, I, you know, I say that in myself because I can go on and be a carpenter because I love working with my hands and, and, and working with wood uh, and, and stuff. Um, man, it would require that African-American farmers are, when you think of a farmer, maybe the first thought you have is um, a person of color uh, in, a, in a hat or some boots or on a horse for African-American youth to choose as a career path, becoming a farmer or becoming a veterinarian or becoming something related to a small farming endeavor, um, having cooperative farmer-worker cooperatives so that the farmers and the communities are all invested in keeping uh, land in the hands of folks that, that take care of it, so we would have, you know, corner, not necessarily corner convenience stores. We'd have corner food stands where this farmer, this is your store here on Grand Lake and Perkins. You bring your food, and the farmer, the community knows that on Wednesday, Farmer Brown has fresh produce. And so we go and we satisfy uh, our, you know, health with the farmer's food that they've worked so hard to prepare for, you know, uh, produce for us. Uh, and and that economically, uh, African American community members are able to to buy fresh food uh, with their dollars from farmers without the use of EBT. Uh, that we have the economic wherewithal that we can support our own and make sure that they keep the land and they keep the food coming to us. And then maybe I can go on and, and make some spoons and, and build tables and chairs and, <laughs> you know, uh, raise my okra on my farm and strawberries. <laughs> well, 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 In North Carolina, perhaps. There you go. There you go. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll welcome you with open arms here. It's great thank here. Thank you. Thank you so much, Byron. Dr. It Gail Myers, I want to thank you not only for the work that you're doing, but for being on the public rally today. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you for your invitation, and I, I uh, commend you for the work that you're doing with public morality as well. Thank you. Thank you. That was Dr. Gail Myers. Stay tuned as we speak with Rebecca Vallis from the Center for American Progress regarding urban poverty.
When one hears the term urban poverty, what comes to mind? And if you have an image in your mind, have you also reached a conclusion as to why that individual is impoverished? My next guest will shed some light on whether your image was accurate. Rebecca Vallis is the Managing Director for the Poverty to Prosperity Program at the Center for American Progress. Rebecca Vallis, welcome to The Public Morality. Thank you so much for having me on. When we uh, discuss, in this instance, for, for, this, for our purposes today, urban poverty, what exactly are we talking about? Well, you know, I, I want to start off by being super candid with you. I think all too often when we have conversations about so-called urban poverty or, or the, quote, urban poor, it ends up being a dog whistle, and it's infused with all sorts of frankly, quite racially uh, uh, incendiary stereotypes. And I think most recently we, we had sort of a hubbub around this. Um, it was Paul Ryan, uh, now the Speaker of the House. Previously, he was the chair of the House Budget Committee when he made these comments. But he talked about urban people and urban problems. And I think, unfortunately, too often that's how people think about poverty in America. And it, it really is infused with um, with really very negative racial stereotypes and misunderstandings about the people that we're talking about. So, um, you know, with, the, with that said, you know, we're, we're constantly reminded uh, that the economy is rebounding. And, but yet uh, recent Census Bureau, Census Bureau data reported that we have, what, 39% of black children, 33% of brown children living in poverty. Uh, we have children under five uh, living in poverty at a rate of 25%. Can those two things be true at the same time? So I think that you're putting your, your finger on something that's really important to understand, which is that poverty and hardship in this country is a lot more complicated than people often make it out to be. So on the one hand, and I think this is the piece that gets the most attention, 47 million Americans living below the poverty line, one in five children um, experiencing poverty today. Those numbers are incredibly high. They are far too high, and they're still at elevated rates past the point um, of, of what we had before the recession took hold um, about six, seven years ago. Um, but I think that the thing that's, that is uh, all too um, uh, infrequently discussed is that poverty is not an us-and-them issue. It's not some stagnant group of, of 47 million Americans who are living on the wrong side of the tracks, or as, as someone like Paul Ryan might say, living in, you know, urban areas. Um, who, just want reality, free, who just want free stuff, right? Well, free, free phones, free, yeah. free whatever, right? Of yeah, course, right. right. And that's how, that's how the, the, the Democrats get the votes. Um, of course, you and I are being incredibly sarcastic here. But, Absolutely. <laughs> to be clear. But the reality of poverty in America is much more complicated. It's, it's not an us and them situation. Today, one in three Americans is currently living in poverty or teetering right on the edge of poverty, living paycheck to paycheck. That's 105 people in this country. And then when you actually look longer— 105 over, million people, right? 105 million yeah. Americans. And when you look longer term, 
what you see is that four out of five Americans will experience at least a year of significant economic insecurity at some point during their lives, whether that's being poor, whether it's teetering on the edge and living paycheck to paycheck, or whether it's being unemployed or needing to turn to the safety net. So it's it's not us and them in the slightest. Hardship and instability have really become the new norm in this country, and that's largely because we have an economy that it's not working for everyday Americans. It's really only working for the people at the top of the income ladder. You know, and so, Rebecca, is, given that response, isn't part of the rub uh, the inability to maybe establish causation? And what I mean by that is, you know, you've already sort of touched on that oversimplification of poverty. And so we, we, hit, we hear these narratives such as poverty equals crime or poverty equals poor performing schools. And it's just not that linear. No, that's that's exactly right, and it is it is complicated. And there's you know the same way that there's no one single cause uh, of poverty, there's also no one single solution. But you know, part of what doesn't get talked about nearly enough is the 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 main drivers of poverty in this country, and they're actually incredibly commonplace experiences. So the three most common drivers of spells of poverty in the United States are job loss, whether yours or someone else in the household who's a breadwinner birth of a child, and disability or illness. Those are the three main life experiences that can drive somebody into poverty in this country. And and you can't have that conversation without also connecting it back to public policy. We're the only developed nation in the entire world that does not have paid family and medical leave. And so that's why in America, something like birth of a child or disability or illness can drive a person into poverty. And that isn't necessarily the case in countries that recognize that having paid family family leave is something that, that is not only a, a basic labor standard, but also something that, that every developed nation should have as, as sort of just a, more of a right. Um, and then when it comes to job loss, right? I mean, uh, as you mentioned a couple of minutes back, um, it's absolutely true that we've seen 67 straight months of job growth. Um, and that's a, a tremendously positive statistic. Uh, unemployment has reached um, uh, uh, much closer levels to where we want to be 5%. Um, it's not quite full employment yet, as economists would say, but it's a heck of a lot closer than where we've been. Um, but that being said, there are still populations uh, across this country that are incredibly hard hit and for whom the recovery really still has yet to reach them. And the, the people who are, are the hardest hit and, and the slowest to feel that recovery are the same people who struggle even in good times. Um, and I'm talking about women, uh, communities of color, um, and, and people with um, justice involvement at some point in their lives, given that having a criminal record can really be a life sentence to poverty. Um, LGBT Americans, there are whole sets of populations who really face a much steeper uphill climb than other people do, whether or not there's a recession taking hold. And uh, I'm thinking about some of the work that, um, say, uh, sociologists like William Julius Wilson, uh, uh, noted sociologist at Harvard University, has done. And I was wondering, do you see in your work, is there a relationship between, say, neighborhood influences and, say, maybe sustained uh, poverty, especially in urban America, 
over multiple generations. Is that something you see, or do you have a different take on that? No, that's that's absolutely the case. And a colleague of mine, actually, her name is Tracy Ross. She's actually my co-host on uh, Talk Poverty Radio, which um, which we produce here at the Center for American Progress. She focuses a lot of her work on, on so-called place-based and concentrated poverty. And that's because a sad reality um, uh, in this country, and, and really borne out by a, a, a whole um, burgeoning set of research, is that a child's zip code can actually determine her life outcomes. Where you live matters a tremendous amount. Um, and so what we end up seeing is that people who live in high poverty neighborhoods, and, and that's typically defined as where um, more than 40% of residents are poor, those people have um, tremendously diminished opportunity. They have less in the way of access to good jobs, good education. They have poor um, uh, health for a variety of reasons, including living in food deserts, not having access to uh, green spaces to, to be physically active. They have less in the way of access to, to reliable transportation, so on and so forth. And so as a result, facing... Um, Oh, and I can't, I can't actually walk through that list without mentioning housing as well, which is a huge piece of the picture. Um, and so inferior housing conditions and um, uh, often being exposed to higher levels of lead. And, and, you know, this is something that was front and center in the discussion around Flint. Unfortunately, it's, Flint is just the tip of the iceberg. Um, and there are a lot of Flints across this country. Um, and it's important to just be really clear that while, um, you know, most low-income people in the United States are white, people of color are much more likely to live in these high-poverty neighborhoods, impoverished neighborhoods. Um, one in four African Americans and, and one in six uh, Latino Americans live in high-poverty neighborhoods compared with just one in 13 of their white counterparts. And so um, it, it, this has to be a part of what we talk about. While it isn't necessarily the face of poverty in this country, and as you, know, you and I have been talking about, uh, poverty and hardship end up being experienced that in many ways are actually quite mainstream and are not relegated to just specific neighborhoods, we have to focus on improving investment in these specific pockets of hardship and impoverishment, or else we're going to be consigning children who are born into the wrong zip code to uh, uh, severely diminished life outcomes. Speaking with uh, Rebecca Vallis, Managing Director of Poverty to Prosperity Program at the Center for American Progress, and she also hosts a, it's a weekly talk show, right? Talk Poverty is weekly, am I correct? That's right, that's right. And, and what time does it come on, Eastern Time? So the easiest way to find us is probably on iTunes. We are also on the Progressive Voices Network uh -huh. um, at uh, uh, 10 a.m. on Saturdays and 11 a.m. on Sundays. But, but iTunes is, is the best way to find you, right? All, always the easiest, and it, probably since... Who, who has radios anymore, although right. I shouldn't, I shouldn't right. say Right. I mean, I, that's what we do. We're on iTunes. We do, this, we do the same thing. But So they just do the search for Talk Poverty and they can find you? That's right. Okay, great. Let's. Um, you sort of touched on it already, but what I'd like to do with you is I'm going to give you uh, several topics, several uh, topics, and I'd like you to put a, a face on one as each one as it relates to poverty. Uh, the first one is crime. I mean, I'm not talking about the person who perpetrates the crime, but how does that impact people who are, uh, who are living in low-income areas? What's the impact of crime on them? 
So there are two edges to this sword, and, and one of them is that uh, lower-income people, and particularly people living in, in high-poverty neighborhoods like we've been discussing, are more likely to live in areas with higher incidences of crime. And that's a problem not just as a matter of public safety, it's also a matter of uh, children's um, upbringing and what they're exposed to and, and what that can mean in terms of their development and chances at um, success later in life. But on the flip side of the coin, people who are living in lower income areas and, and who themselves have lower incomes, um, and, and you know, to, to call a spade a spade, I'm, I'm talking largely about communities of color, have historically been over-policed in this country. And this has particularly been something that has has risen up and, and really ballooned over the course of the last four decades. You can't have a conversation about the connection between poverty and crime without recognizing the failed experiment that is mass incarceration in America. Um, the statistics that people probably know um, and which have been really on the, on the tips of everyone's tongues over the course of the last couple of years as this issue has gotten a lot more attention, you know, uh, five, the U.S. has 5% of the world's population, but 25% of the world's prison population. We spend $80 billion a year um, locking people up left and right. But the statistics that are less well known and that really underscore the, the fact that mass incarceration and poverty go hand in hand have to do with the fact that not only are lower income people more likely and, and communities of color more likely to be thrown behind bars, but coming out having a criminal record, having any history of justice involvement, even an arrest that never even led to a conviction, and it certainly didn't ever land you behind bars to serve out a sentence, that can be a life sentence to poverty. And that's because having even a minor criminal record can mean uh, uh, that you have your resume thrown in the trash every time you apply for a job, that you have your application for housing thrown in the trash every time you try to find an apartment for you and your family can mean that you can't get into college college or access job training, I could go on and on and on. And so as a result, having even a minor, even a decades-old criminal record can mean that you can't get your footing while you try to get back on two feet and that you can't get ahead and provide for your family. And so that's the reality that 100 million Americans, one in three Americans, are facing today. Research from the Center for American Progress last year actually found that nearly half of American children now have at least one parent with a criminal record and that that can severely limit their life chances. So until we actually take notice of this fact and put in place policies that make it possible for people to re-enter their communities, to regain economic stability, and to move on with their lives despite having made one mistake or having been accused of one mistake that they didn't even make, um, we're, we're not going to break the link between mass incarceration and poverty. Um, closely related, you sort of touched on it, Ann, but the, the next one is affordable housing. Housing is absolutely critical to economic stability. And so, you know, a couple of things that are, are pretty staggering. So we were talking about the importance of place, right, and that where you grow up can really matter. And I should, I should actually note, we've been talking a lot about urban poverty. It's important to bring up rural poverty as well. Rural communities across this country have also been incredibly neglected and disinvested in over time. Um, and, and um, you know, we've seen programs throughout the 20th century focusing on agricultural policy, which is critically important, but not so much community needs. And a big piece of this is also tribal communities, um, which have faced chronic underfunding of critical programs for generations, especially those related to education and health and public safety 
And so we end up with American Indians and Alaska Natives having the highest poverty rates in the entire United States. Basically, one in three um, of these individuals are, are living um, below the federal poverty line, which is twice uh, what other people um, experience. So, but back to the importance of place, I just felt that... that it no, was no, that, was, that was a very important segue. Thank you for that. Yeah. <laughs> important to know, because we often forget about rural. Um, but but place matters, and you know we've been talking a little bit about that. Um, it, and it's um, it's important, especially in uh, uh, early in children's lives, right? So what we actually see is that um, living in high poverty neighborhoods can can actually hamper children's cognitive development, their academic performance, their chances of completing high school, of going to college, completing college, their earnings potential later in life when they reach adulthood. So where you live has a tremendous amount to do with your life outcomes. And affordable housing is a huge, huge part of that picture because it's about where can you actually afford to raise your family and raise your children. Um, And increasingly, what we've seen um, is that uh, low-income people and and uh, predominantly low-income communities of color are actually being suburbanized. They're being pushed out of um, uh, of city centers where there is greater access to jobs and to opportunity. Um, and, and we've seen them pushed out to the suburbs where they might not have the same access to reliable transportation and the same access to jobs as well. And that's because of where they can actually afford to live. As and you know, Washington D.C., where I'm I'm taping from with you right now, is a great example. You end up seeing the district itself becoming more and more chic and fashionable. It's where people want to live and people increasingly are priced out. Affordable housing just isn't part of the picture. Now, the good news is that research shows that moving children to better neighborhoods at a young age can yield tremendous results in terms of improving their chances at at, um, uh, all the various outcomes that I mentioned before, everything ranging from health to education to earnings in adulthood. Um, And uh, there was a recent study by um, some economists um, at Harvard and Stanford finding that if if you if a person moves to um, a an area with lower poverty early early in his or her life where the and by lower poverty I mean where the poverty rate is less than 20 percent so that's still a, a high rate of poverty but a, about half the rate of what's considered to be a high poverty neighborhood um, during childhood that person will see an increase in total lifetime earnings of more than three hundred thousand dollars. So we know that that there actually is a lot that we can do in this area. Now, I, I should say that doesn't mean that the solution is just to move everybody out of high poverty neighborhoods, right? That's that's just not going to work as a national policy. But it does show us that um, that 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 policy can make a difference, and affordable housing really is is the linchpin of that. You know, one of the things in this in this conversation that that um, you are demonstrating uh, is that. I've asked you about crime. I've asked you about affordable housing, and just in those two alone, you've 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 demonstrated how interrelated these are as they relate to poverty. The last one I'm going to ask you about is health, and I'd like for you to include mental health in your response, if you could. Absolutely. So um, there is a growing literature finding that the effects of poverty on health, both physical health and mental health, as you mentioned, um, are, are tremendous and they are long-lasting. So, and particularly this is the case when it comes to children who are exposed to poverty and to hardship. So 
that literature finds that poverty um, is detrimental to children's long-term physical health as well as their short-term health. There's, um, I think people are probably most familiar with um, asthma and, and other types of immediate conditions that children can face based on the kinds of conditions that they're exposed to. If you've got lead in the paint um, in the house or if you've got cockroaches in the apartment that you're living in, um, those can be uh, um, uh, predictors of whether a child is going to be likely to experience asthma and other types of, of health conditions. Obviously, we talked a little bit about Flint, and that's an extreme example of children being exposed to astronomical levels of lead in the water, which can have all sorts of, of um, uh, physical and, and mental effects, including uh, Legionnaire's disease and all, all sorts of really, really horrible and tragic and long-lasting stuff. Um, but it also impacts uh, children's cognitive development. And so this is where, in many ways, the mental comes in, right? Um, I mentioned before that, you know, where you live matters. And this is, you know, it's not just about the physical conditions of what's around you, um, but it's about that, uh, that disinvestment um, in your neighborhood, what you have access to, underperforming schools, um, uh, a lack of opportunity for your parents, um, how much they're able to read to you. All of these are factors that can impair um, or improve children's cognitive development and ultimate uh, performance in school and, and lifelong outcomes. Um, and um, I mean, the other thing, and I, I hate to even have to be able to say this sentence, right, because it's a tragic sentence living in the, the richest nation on earth, um, but, uh, but childhood disability occurs on what's called an income gradient, which means that the the lower income you are um, as a child, the more likely you are to have a disability. Um, children who grow up below the federal poverty line are almost uh, twice as likely as children who grow up below uh, grow up above twice the federal poverty line to have a disability. And so it, it, it's it's really about being able to afford not to have. Uh, disability or health conditions. That's that's the state of affairs that, that we have. As a result, child poverty, it, it doesn't just harm the children who are affected and the families who are affected. It actually takes a toll on our economy as a whole. It uh, Analysis that, that we've done here at CAP has found that uh, child poverty costs the United States economy $672 billion dollars each year by taking a bite out of our gross domestic product. And that's because of all of the various long-term, long-lasting effects that I mentioned. Now, again, the good news is that that same research actually shows that investing in children early in life can can improve their long-term outcomes. So boosting a poor family's income by even $3,000 a year can translate into improved health outcomes for children, academic outcomes for children, earnings potential, um, and, and we're talking about really, really small amounts of income. When you boost it more substantially, you also see uh, higher rates of return as well later in life for those same kids. So all of that being just such a stark reminder that um, proposals to slash vital programs like nutrition assistance, like housing assistance, um, are, are not only the wrong way to go, but will have long-lasting um, and really, really negative outcomes 
for uh, the next generation as well as for our economy as a whole. But on the flip side, strengthening those programs and strengthening effective uh, tax credits for working families like the earned income tax credit, the, the child tax credit, which are incredibly important sources of income for struggling families, those are a recipe for um, not just mitigating hardship in the short term, but giving children a fighting chance later in life. Rebecca Vallis uh, from the Center for American Progress, I want to thank you today uh, for being on The Public Morality. I'm sure we will have you back to talk more in depth about poverty. Well, thank you for having me on, and thank you for being a loyal listener of Talk Poverty Radio as well. Absolutely. Take care. That was Rebecca Vallis. Coming up, my closing remarks. now for my closing remarks. Roger Daltrey, the famed frontman for the rock group The Who, recently stated that The Who are unlikely to ever release another album because the internet has stolen the music industry. According to Daltrey, the internet has placed downward pressure on the music industry so that the last one to benefit financially is the one most would assume would be first, the artist. For as dependent as we've become collectively on the internet, does it stifle creativity? And Daltrey's lament is not exclusive to musicians. It's also applicable to the writer. This I can speak from firsthand experience. I love the way the Internet saved me time and money researching my book, 1963, The Year of Hope and Hostility, with practically the entire John F. Kennedy Presidential Library digitized. I was able to zero in on the documents I needed at a fraction of the time had I physically been at the library. But there is the production side. Every aspect of the book industry has figured out a way to make money with the possible exception of the writer. And like the music CD, the book is fastly becoming nothing more than a dense business card. Perhaps the only way writers can survive is to self-publish. Once viewed by many within the publishing world as a scourge of the industry, may turn out to be the only viable alternative for writers in the 21st century to survive. But this is not simply a lament for writers and musicians. This phenomenon raises deeper questions. Can a free society survive when creativity becomes a disincentive? Can we truly be a free society if we have been collectively whittled down to automatons? This is the double-edged sword that the Internet offers. Either we figure out the balance or we forgo all hope of pursuing that more perfect union. The public morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. And for those who would like to hear the archive broadcast, you can find those at our website, which is publicmorality.com. That's our show for today. The Public Morality is produced by WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams. (laughs) 